0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. We're on series four now, but if you haven't heard the show before, then the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Right now, I find myself in a North London industrial estate, which is home to the studio of Barnaby Barford. The artist initially made his name by reworking mass-market and antique porcelain figurines, which he manipulated to create occasionally biting and always satirical commentaries onto contemporary society. Comparisons were quickly drawn to the likes of Jonathan Swift and William Hogarth. Recent exhibitions have included the Tower of Babel at the V&A, which featured 3,000 shopfronts, from derelict buildings to luxury boutiques, in an effort to illustrate the disparity of wealth across the capital. Meanwhile, his latest installation, More, 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 investigates our incessant need for more stuff as we face ecological disaster. He's been described by one writer, and I can't for a moment think who said this, as part artist, part inventor, part Dickensian street urchin. While Alan Graves, Senior Curator of Ceramics and Glass at the VNA, has written that his work exposes us to our inner frailties, prejudices and desires, holding up a mirror to us both metaphorically as well as on occasion physically, few are so incisive and insightful. Barnaby, thank you very much for doing this. Well,
1: welcome. Thank you very much for coming.
0: Was that all um, reasonably accurate? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the street urchin thing. I not think where that comes from. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Very fine writer, I think. Um, just to mention that we're in the middle of your studio, which is this industrial estate. There will be some banging and noises occasionally. Um, but often I'm intrigued because there's a perception of ceramicists, and you started out as a ceramicist, and uh, or at least working in ceramics. That they are surrounded by nature; they're creating brown pots and bucolic environments. Um, we're in the middle of this industrial estate. I'm guessing that was a deliberate choice. Um, well, I started just working on my kitchen table. So when
1: I graduated from the Royal College, um, I, yeah, I didn't have a studio. I didn't have any money. I Was doing various work, sort of cutting up uh, plates and cups and teapots, and um, doing some sort of projection-based installations. And I, yeah, so I just thought, like, you know, I need to, I need to start working. So I, I started working on my kitchen table, then the spare room, and then we moved house, and you know, we bought house and. I started working in one of the bedrooms, and then the loft, and then got to the point where my wife was pregnant with our first child, and we thought, you know, I should actually probably look for a studio. And so I looked at all these different places, and eventually, you know, there were some nice studios, but they were all always with a normal-sized door, Mm. and I thought, I want to make something bigger than that. I want something with a roller shutter. So, um, you know, I looked around, looked around and eventually found, found this place. And um, I, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think there's much in the way of creativity
0: happening <laughs> too close. I think things are changing up here. But well, Can we describe it a little bit? What, 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 both your studio, but also the environment in which we're okay, in for so the, the The studio
1: is probably like an, an old uh, M.O.T. Um, garage. I'd say. That's probably what it was originally used for. Um, and the industrial estate, it's... I don't know. I mean, industrial estates are really weird, aren't they? They're, they're not nature. It's not the city. I'm just off the A406. So it's this sort of hinterland, isn't it? It's um, sort of the last bastion of industry ring that goes around London. Um I don't know what most of the people do, my next door neighbour supplies um, sundries to fish and chip shops, um, got somebody that makes food for the NHS behind us, <laughs> there's um, you know, lots of mechanics and MOT places, um, and there's a lady upstairs that makes the most amazing uh, gelato. So, that's you know, it's a, it's, a it's, a real,
0: it's a real mix of, it's a real mix. <laughs> you do get the sense there's a lot of potential stuff going on. Yes. Here. Imagine all the
1: stuff that you don't know that's going on, which is quite, quite interesting.
0: And I mean, your working environment is fascinating because we're surrounded by stuff on the walls. There's loads and loads of car- bits of cardboard and old packets and stickers and tools. And uh, is all this in an order? Um, it wouldn't be if
1: I didn't have the help of uh, Mariana, who works with me, because I'm, um, you know, I'm very, very messy. Um, But there is some, there is some order to it. I mean, I don't work doing one thing, finish it and then do the next thing and finish it and then do the next thing. I'm working on about sort of 10 different things at the same time. So um, I guess I, I like to have everything on the wall rather than put away, you know, because I think there's always the chance of um, accidents happening, of materials next to each other, colours next to each other, images next to each other. Um, and having things on the wall, you know, they're seeping into your brain all the time, aren't they? Um, rather than, I think I always try and make it as easy as possible to think of new things, rather than having to go somewhere, open a cupboard, take something out, start working on it. You know, if everything's there, then you can just sort of grab hold of it and start doing it as, as you know, as the will takes you. Really.
0: Should we talk about the material for which you're best known? Yeah, clay. Um, when did you become interested in it? Because you studied 3D at Plymouth. Right? Yeah, that's right. 3D um, design. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, it's funny because I've never really been interested in clay. Um, we did a project in the first year, a slip casting project. So we had to make a model, and then make a two-part mold and then fill it with slip and go through that whole whole process. And I didn't know what we were doing, you know, we made this model and then we made a mold and then you don't know what to expect from the next stage, you don't know what to expect from the next stage. And then I filled this thing up with slip, emptied it, opened it, and it was, um, you know, it was a complete eureka moment of, oh, this is how stuff's made. You know, this is, I can make any shape I want repeat it as many times as I want relatively easily and relatively cheaply and yeah I just I was just hooked on that industrial process of making ceramics and so I sort of pursued it for the rest of my time there I went to did Erasmus and studied in Italy in Faenza Oh, well, with a lot of clay there. A lot of clay, yeah, yeah. and because that's the tile, the tile centre of Italy. Uh, well, that. the tile centre is uh, Sassuolo, which is near than But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of clay there. Yeah, there's a lot of clay, and you know, I I, I didn't actually do that much work there. I did some work there, but I, I learned. You know, it was just it's great experience. I Met my wife there, and you know, mm. yeah, the bonds that we've made there since is 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 amazing. But I came back and. Carried on working in clay, carried on working with plaster, making molds and slip casting. And I was at the same time playing around on computers. I just bought my first computer and I'd got hold of a copy of 3D Studio Max and Photoshop. I think that in, in Italy, everybody's using computers. So I was like, oh, wow. So I came back and I started working on it. And I started using rapid prototyping when it first started and started making objects that couldn't be made by hand, then rapid prototyping it and then taking a mould and making them in ceramic. What
0: year are we talking here? 97? Right. Because the first time I would have seen it, the first time I thought about rapid prototyping I remember Ron Arad. Okay, this so it was sim- it stuff. was
1: a similar time. Yeah. And it was quite, it was very expensive and you couldn't get any water near the things that you'd done, so had to make them all in silicon molds and stuff. And then it was that idea of using this ceramic this technique of making molds, re- repeating the object to make a larger form. So, because it was expensive to do the rapid prototyping, so just something smaller, but then repeat that unit to make a, to make a bigger object. And um, that's, you know, I got to the end of my degree and I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. It's what I want to do. So I, I applied for the Royal College with that sort of proposal of sort of doing CAD Cam, like you know to so uh, the ceramics and glass? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Sort of right. doing rapid prototyping, making ceramics. So I'd written my thesis on sort of virtual ceramics and virtual art, and and then I went there and did something completely different.
0: <laughs> can I take you back? Uh, what were you making as a child?
1: Yeah, I remember going to Saturday art classes, and I remember doing clay at uh, those art classes, and you know clay was a part of part of childhood wasn't it i don't think it is so much now um you know with my children um and then i used to draw loads and loads we always had we always had paper so i just remember drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing mm. and getting excited by
0: neon markers <laughs> cuz i mean you had quite a an interest in childhood. I remember we talked once before and you were saying that you were brought up by your mum but your grandfather paid for you to go to private school. I mean, you, you talked to me about not feeling like you fitted in anywhere. I'm not sure. I don't know about the fitting
1: in thing, really. I th- I still don't think I really fit in mm. uh, anywhere. But I think as I've got older, I think that
0: um, it's probably a good thing. I mean, I'm quite intrigued in terms of yeah, this interest you obviously have in satire, in society's issues and problems, whether that stemmed from from childhood.
1: Yeah, it might well do. I think I've I've well, I've always been interested in people. And you know, this country is uh you know, it's 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 built on the class system and it, it's sort of prevalent everywhere that you look. And so I think when I first started working with figurines, you know, naturally, you either have uh, street urchins Mm. or you've got this sort of aristocracy with these characters. There's nothing really in between. So, um, you know, that also sort of felt like a natural evolution of the work, and I think I never really... I sort of was reacting to media and reacting to the world around me. And I think over the years, the more work that I made, the more I understood what I wanted to make work about. I think there was a sort of a growing up and a sort of maturing and an understanding of not so much of the world around me, but sort of of understanding that I was trying to understand the world around me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where... So... And I think... And that's stayed the same. You know, that's why I make work, is really to try and understand the world around me, try and understand my place in it, um, and sort of try and understand what's going on and if that's any different to how it's always been. Do you read a lot? Yeah, I, I read a lot. And basically, the way I work is I'll do... I'll spend periods of doing loads of research. So, um, so let's say with the last body of work, I sort of researching happiness. So I was looking at it sort of from a, a political point of view, religious, historical, um, biological, um, economical point of view. So I'll do sort of loads of dipping in and out of reading and loads of seminars and trying to do this sort of, broadest amount of research. And then I'll find something and then go deeper into that and then broaden that out and then go deeper into that. And there's usually sort of one or two seminal things that I read that are like, ah, that's sort of put into words how I feel. Um, And then I'll end up sort of switching modes and getting into more of an exploratory mode in making work, and then it will be into a sort of production phase where I'm still experimenting, but it's like, okay, now I've got a deadline, you know, for an exhibition or something like that. And usually that, the reading then sort of gets less and less as I get making more. And then once that's over, then I'll get sort of back into into
0: reading again. So it's like a research period.
1: Yeah, I do. I try and do that. It's sort of giving a... It, a, it gives me ideas, and B, it sort of helps me feel, you know, it, it builds a sort of stronger foundation for the, um, for the work.
0: Mm. So we're digressing a little bit from the story, but that's fine. You, you, you went to the Royal College of Art. You had been making this kind of 3D-printed, mould-based yeah. work. So what happened at the Royal College?
1: Um, I think I was exposed to lots of different people, really. Um, Different sorts of tutors, uh, lots of other students in lots of different departments. I mean, I went there straight from doing my BA, so I was quite young. Uh, And I started just trying to do lots of different stuff, really. Um, And then I didn't do any more computer work, really. Um, Apart from at the end, I was still sort of doing animations and stuff at home on my own. And then uh, my professor, we got to the end and he said, Oh, you know, I was sort of presenting what I was going to show at the final show. He said, I think you, you could probably do another work. And I was sort of a bit cross because I thought, I've done loads here. You know, what are you talking about? So I thought, oh, I'm just going to do. You know, sorry, I'm just going to do some animations and show those. And then um, I had a really good tutor, Jefford Horrigan. and he'd said, you know, your your works have always three things, and so where's this third thing coming in? So I was thinking, well, what what do I project onto? And I still remember doing the drawing of, uh, you know, project onto a project onto a plate. And then. I ended up making a work, which I still really love, actually, uh, which was called Conversation Piece. And it was the willow pattern, the story of, um, projected onto two white plates. So I'd scanned in and then animated the story, which is a tra- tragic love story. And on one plate was the, all the figures moving. And on the other plate was the story written out. And it was projected down and it fitted exactly onto these two white plates on a table setting for two. The idea is that you read this sort of love story to each other. So it's sort of for couples that didn't have anything to say to each other anymore. Or um, food
0: to eat, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and so, yeah, I ended up doing more work like that when I finished. and And in a funny way, what ceramics what i was most interested with ceramics was is there was this wonderful opportunity to play with the history of the material um you know it's a sort of healthy irreverence of it you know you know all the history you know uh it's industrial history and and, and the pottery history and, and all of that when actually you can you can You know, it's such a rich area to play with and to to have fun with, really. Um, And that's when, you know, after I finished, that's when I just one day I thought, oh, I could could cut up figurines.
0: And so I started collecting them. So hang, did you collect the figurines to cut up or were you already collecting figurines? No, I I
1: collected them to cut up, but I didn't have any tools to cut them up. And it got to one point, and this was just at home. And my wife said at one point, she said, hey, "If you, you better start doing something with them." <laughs> and so I just
0: bought. So a how d- many did you have?
1: Quite a lot. I was buying them sort of indiscriminately: car boot sales, um, charity shops. I actually pushed up the price of figurines <laughs> in charity shops where I lived, and uh, and then I bought a Dremel. And I just started cutting them up. And I thought I was going to make sort of Frankensteinian style creations out of them. And straight away, with the very first one, it became about the narrative between these characters.
0: So you made these kind of tableaux. Yeah, yeah.
1: Straight away. The very first Mm. thing that I cut up, Mm. I was like, oh, put two things together. And it's like, yeah, there you go. And and then, yeah, I, I, I carried on working like that for about 10 years. You know, it went well. People liked them. And then I ended up working with with David Gill. Well, I was
0: going to ask how long before you started you started making the figurines. When did the relationship with David Gill well, and galleries start?
1: I was, we had a group show at Barrett Marsden and at the Royal College, and then I just started taking work down there. So I'd just get on the tube and just take work down there when I'd finished it. I didn't really understand the protocol of working with galleries and stuff. Then I made these figurines, and actually, it was uh, Nelson Wu really liked them, and he he bought a few. And and you know, to give him massive credit, he you know he said, "Well, you know, you should go and maybe see David as well." Mm. And then I hadn't realised that they, they that they'd seen some work that I'd made in a show at Sotheby's, which was curated by Janice Blackburn. Right. So it was sort of quite a bit. Circular, Circular. which was was
0: good. And Um, and what kind of influence has David had on your career? I wonder.
1: The biggest thing is it's allowed me to make work, like consistently make work. So, and that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing, really. Is I've, and I, I thought when I finished, this is what I want to do. And for for years, I was you know we we were we were really skint. We didn't have any any money at all. And so it was, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to make,
0: make work rather than have another job that supported making work. Did it take you to a slightly different place, kind of out of the design or craft world and into a more, an art market?
1: You know, I have to make the work that I want to make. And that's what they've always allowed me to do without sort of trying to steer me in in any one direction or asking for more of one thing, is that I've, I've been able to make the work that I want to make, David once described you as being quite tortured
0: is he is he right <laughs>
1: uh yeah i I think I make things difficult for myself um I think that everything that i do I do with a intensity and a rigor, whether it's an investigation or whether it's a process i I don't know whether it's some sort of Catholic guilt, Protestant work ethic, even though I'm sort of neither, uh, that I sort of like it when it's hard. You know, when the reason I stopped doing the figurines was I'd sort of worked out how to do it. Yeah. Because you could have, I mean, that was what,
0: 2011? You, yeah. c- you could have kept doing
1: yeah. this. I wanted to stop earlier in 2008, nine, but then I made a film for Mm, Channel channel 4, which sort of kept me going for a few years because it was just like, wow, it was such an amazing process, that with animate projects. I absolutely loved it. But that's had an extraordinary journey, really, for a short film. Um, And so I, yeah, I mean, I knew how to make a good piece and so it stopped becoming interesting. So I put down my work and was like, right, I you know, want to find a new language. It's when I moved in, shortly after I moved in here, and I wanted to make some bigger work. And I'm sort of going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, is I'd sort of understood what I wanted to make work about. And I wanted to do the Seven Deadly Sins, which is the last time you came up here, actually. Yes, Mirrors. And... I wanted to make some large scale pieces and the reason why they ended up being mirrors was because I sort of didn't want them to be these passive sculptures. I wanted you to be within, you know, see yourself within them. And I've actually always, you know, looking back, I've actually always worked with with with, with mirrors. And, you know, the first piece I made, you know, it was 9,000 handmade made bits of porcelain with decals on them and it nearly killed me and the film making the film you know nearly killed me and doing the tower it was well yeah we're going to come on to and so like I kind of give these you know I I embark on these projects that I think oh yeah you know do that and never realising how you know how 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 much they're going to sort of overtake my life, and and I sort of struggle when things come a bit easier. I I, even though it might be a a, a lovely drawing or uh, you know, um, I I I sort of think I need to make it harder for myself. Mm.
0: Mm. Why the seven deadly sins?
1: They were written down by Pope. Gregory in uh, 600, I think. And they'd been around a lot longer than that. And so that's sort of nearly 1500 years. And I wanted to see if they were still relevant, if they still mattered, if they were still the same, if they were still, you know, without the threat of eternal damnation, what, you know, are there any consequences nowadays? And so I started, as I do with all my work, I started with this that series of questions, really, and started reading and exploring and trying to understand and um, sort of trying to sort of form a language around it. Um, and, you know, they are the same. And it, it goes back to that question of, are we any different? What makes us different now than, you know, medieval times or the dawn of society, you know? But we, we haven't really
0: evolved. And do you reach any conclusions? Did I reach conclusions? Is conclusion? it important to reach conclusions?
1: Um, I I don't think it's ever a definitive conclusion. It's a, a, a deeper understanding of it, mm. which then leads on to more questions. So it was really, what really interested me was uh, looking at Envy and um It was, I've got to say it's a long time ago now, it was, how does it start? It starts with, why can't I enjoy what they have? And it ends with, why should they enjoy what I can't have? And that had quite a profound effect on me, thinking about society, and it was... um, the, the the time of the uh, the riots london riots which were just down the road and um you know it sort of got me thinking about this divide and in the city especially you know we have this sort of the richest people in the world here and we've got also the sort of poorest areas in the country here and so that's really what led on to exploring and, and trying to understand the tower
0: well, yes, this is it, the Tower of Babel, which was, what, 2015? 2015, 2015 yeah. yeah. Which featured 3,000 shopfronts that you photographed from across London. Um, so can we talk a bit about the, the thinking, but also the, the process behind that piece? You spent a lot of time on a bike, right?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I, um, so I was... I hate shopping. <laughs> and, but I was fascinated by the idea of, of people going shopping, you know, going shopping for fun. And even now, so that's what, six years later, times feel, it feels different now. Uh, But at that time, it felt like peak shopping, you know, peak stuff. Uh, We, you know, we got to, you know, it's the great British pastime of choice. um, And I wanted to explore that. And I didn't really know exactly how to. So I just went out on my bike and started photographing London. And in all honesty, I thought it was going to be sort of like some Charles Dickens perambulations of London, and I'd go out and look at shops and probably find something else to make work about. But I went out every day and mapped areas on an on a, a to Z, and crossed off pages. And I think I towed about 1,000 miles just cycling around London, photographing shops And I, at the same time, I was talking to Alan Graves from um, the V&A and we'd sort of been discussing potential projects to do together. Um, And I said, I've got this idea to do a a sort of city. And so it it sort of started there and then built up and built up. And it's like, yeah, the city, one side rich, one side poor. And then it was just like, ah. See, maybe it needs to be a single entity. And then I was thinking about, oh, the tower. And then it's sort of like with a lot of my work, it's sort of like, well, what's the first tower? It's like Seven Deadly Sins, right? I go back to the beginning. And it's like the thing with the apple, right? Let's go back to the beginning. And uh, it was like the Tower of Babel. And then it's just suddenly all of these things make sense. You know, it's, uh, the tower... um. If you're not familiar with the story, it was uh, they sort of after the floods built a tower to make a name for themselves and um, God being the Old Testament, God wasn't happy about that and stopped them building the tower by uh, making everybody speak different languages and disperse people across the globe. So it's the story of why we all speak different languages and uh, live all over the, uh, the earth. And so it just made loads of sense. You know, so, so all these uh, links with, ah, uh, you know, London is sort of like the opposite of that, isn't it? People come here and sort of built this this sort of tower of, of um, capitalism, really, and um, all these different languages and um, making a name for yourself and, um, I guess, uh, what's... Uh, I guess, sort of, uh, you know, aspiration through consumption. And so I I started just, you know, taking pictures of shops, taking pictures of shops. And then we decided to do the project together. And it was just, you know, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. Um, So I I must have taken about 6,000 pictures or 6,000 shops. And which, you know, taking the pictures was a fun bit. But then it was... 18 months on Photoshop, straightening them up, attaching the pictures, cleaning them up. You know, even the layout of the transfers, I I sort of took three months. And I worked with 1882 uh, up in Stoke, who made the shops for me. And it was just Herculean, really. And I'm really uh, particular. It's another word I was going to use there, but uh, really particular. So, you know... Actually making a square block out of bone china is quite difficult. Um, And they all had to be exactly the same size. Because if it's two mil out, then suddenly you get the sides, you know. Mm. And I wanted these things to be exquisite. I wanted you to buy one. When you got it, you know, you didn't open the box and go, oh, (laughs) It looked
0: great when they were all together. I
1: just wanted these things to be absolutely beautiful. Because the
0: notion is you could choose one and buy it and and there was a price range.
1: Yeah. So all the shops at the bottom were closed down and derelict. Then you went to the pound shops, the chicken shops, the, um, uh, the, the, the convenience stores, the barber shops, clothes shops, all the way to the top where you've got the exclusive boutiques, galleries and auction houses. And they were all unique, all signed works and they were all for sale so we built a, a massive website which sort of acted as a sort of e-commerce site but also as a you know as as a do not know what the word is really um as a way of exploring all the this because you couldn't see them all you yeah. know it was six yeah. meters um it acted I guess as a sort of legacy to the the project. So you could
0: see it. It was a real snapshot of, of London in, in 2015. It was a legacy to the project, but also, I mean, the high street has been suffering ever since. I mean, it was kind of like the last gasp yeah. of the high street. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean a would, lot more derelict shops now, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, and whole, I mean, whole streets changed in, in the time that I was making, you know, sort of lower Clapton road, you know, sort of started as secondhand shops. And then by the time I went down there again, you know, they're all sort of moustache wax and craft ale shops. Um, but it was fascinating. And I'm still totally addicted to shops. And I could, you know, I I totally fell in love with shops. You know, What about so shopping? No, still not. <laughs> but shops and the stories and, you know, they're the wallpaper of our streets, aren't they? And you don't notice it until they're gone. And... They say so much i hadn't i'd embarked on this project, but i hadn't realized how deep it was would would sort of go you know it's it's they're all families they're businesses they 've all got stories they've all um you know you can talk about it in terms of architecture in terms of um graphic design you can t- talk about it in terms of immigration of um uh, class of um Gosh, you know, there's so many different ways of, of of looking at it. And what I hadn't realized in making it, you know, I, I'd started making it as a kind of real critique. But when it was up, when it was done, when people came, I hadn't realized that, it, you know, it gave, it was a real celebration mm-hmm. of London and, uh, you know, of its independent shopkeepers and... It gave a lot of people a lot of joy, yeah. like a real lot of joy. And people spent people spent ages there, looking and finding places. Oh, that's my chippy, or that's my you know, my shoe shop, and that's my you know, barber. And I got some such lovely letters and tweets and messages from people saying, "Oh my, you know, my mum's had a shop for sixty years, and you know, now it's there and." Uh, so it's a it was a, real, it
0: was a real wonderful project, actually. I mean, obviously, we touched on society's iniquities are, are often a, a theme of your work. And your 2016 show, Me Want Now, uh, which featured huge ceramic animals, uh, looked at a kind of post thatcherite obsession with individuality. Did that run on directly from Tower of
1: Babel? I think what I learned from the Tower is that we'd sort of ceased to be citizens and we're now consumers. And I felt that that sort of paved the way to make us quite an anxious society. Um, And so the next exhibition was sort of kept up that sort of investigation of, uh, you know, this anxious society where we're told, you know, you sort of, destined to be dissatisfied aren't you in our economic system because if you were happy and satisfied you'd sort of stop consuming stop wanting more and so that i was working on that work during the brexit referendum and so i saw really quickly how how i felt a sort of an anxious society is so easily provoked with sort of rhetoric of, of fear, um, and you know how quickly things can change. So that that work really became about um, it was about you know it was about a few things, but it was that that was the focus when I was sort of making it
0: because it featured a baby elephant. There was an eight-foot polar bear, yeah. black panther. Yeah. Why yeah. those creatures in particular? Well i wanted i i was sort of quite fascinated by the queue uh
1: and the queue you know the sort of powerful don't cue, do they and I think the cues' got a lot of um sort of references whether it's the dull Q, whether it's a queue for aid you know e- even more you know more sinister things as well and so I felt that by using animals, and they're all animals that are hunted by, by humans, and putting them in a very unanimal thing. You know, there's only one time when animals queue up, isn't there, really? Uh, so sort of to go to slaughter. And so, but all of these different animals together, you know, hunters and prey together in this queue. And um, with these... Sort of voices on the wall. So I'd started making these word drawings, which are uh, drawings made repeating the same word over and over and over yes. and over again. I was going to ask you,
0: because it's kind of like angry calligraphy, isn't it? Yeah. You and look furious well, when
1: you were doing that. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of energy. I mean, it's really nice to be able to... Like, the ceramic work takes months of planning and execution, and by the time you're actually making it, there's not too much room for change. So by doing the drawings, it was sort of me... A um, a word, my emotion, and the you know the the path that the pencil or, or charcoal was was taking me on. So that was a real that was so nice to do. You know, it's the sort of first time where I brought sort of two D work into 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 my sort of practice, as it were. And the um, words
0: you chose, things like more, power, change, choice. Yeah. How did you decide?
1: Um, they were words that you know, um, seemed really important in this, in this um, referendum campaign. Um, they're words that when you take them on their own, you know, hope, glory, change, choice, um, more, growth, they sort of fairly positive words. But then when they're repeated and repeated and repeated by politicians and on social media it becomes, you know, it becomes something else, don't they? The, 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 the meaning changes and the meaning becomes warped. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to to have as these sort of voices on the walls. Sort of, nothing's enough, you have more, you know, you need more, you need more change, more choice. And the animals were sort of this in this sort of quiet queue, <laughs> sort of waiting and not having any choice in their you know, in, in, in their
0: future, really. Words feature again in your latest show, which is called More, More, More. Um, that centres around the apple. We're surrounded by photographs, drawings, apple ephemera. Um, what's the interest in the apple? So
1: I'd realised from making the tower, from even the seven deadly sins, from um, the, the me want now, that actually I was sort of looking at happiness... In a lot of them, right? Happiness through consumption or, um, uh, you know, reasons of dis- you know, for us not to be happy. And so I th- thought, like, I'm going to research happiness, and really look at it. And um, so I started, and I guess the reasons of a, a lack of, or perceived lack of happiness, really, because we-, we-, we should be happy. You know in this nation you know we the, the ingredients are there um so why aren't we what's what's this sort of reason of of distrust and anger and division and hatred and so i started looking at it from all these different areas and uh from you know political and economical and biological and uh religious and political and i I came to the conclusion that we we have this incessant need for more, and not just more stuff, and so I was, at the time, I it goes back to making things difficult for myself, I started trying to, I was exploring paint, and painting with the word drawings, and I thought, right, I'm just going to paint the word more, so that's all I'm going to do, over and over and over and over again, and then as I was doing that, and as I was reading, I was thinking, more what? you know, more money, more cars, more hair, more friends, more likes, more love, more sex, more shoes, more peace, more, um, more war, more guns. And I started making these lists of more what, and it seemed to me that actually that for me, that sort of seemed to sum up sort of contemporary society where it doesn't really matter what you achieve or you do or what you have there's this oh what's next what are you doing you know what's more what's what's and
0: (laughs) I've got that question coming up at the end
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) and uh and so I I again went back to a beginning not you know not the beginning but a beginning some and I thought, well, yeah, what's the original more moment? And it was like, wow, yeah, Adam and Eve. And they supposedly had everything. Yet there was still a temptation to want more, whether that was knowledge or wisdom or freedom even. And so that got me onto the idea of making the apple tree where there was this tree and it had... Um, 80 bone-china apples, each with a different word on it, um, a promise of more. So, and it was sort of the tree of good and evil, really. So it had had everything. So it had, uh, you know, love and peace and uh, empathy. and um, But then it also had, uh, you know, populism, hatred, uh, division, chaos. And... The idea would be that you'd you'd buy an apple and you'd go and actually pick it from the tree. So um, made these um, sort of rapid prototyped stalks that snapped off. So and they snapped off with a really gorgeous, really loud snap. And so you sort of reenact that moment of, of the downfall of mankind. And I quite like that. It's a little bit like the tower in terms of your. And a little bit, I guess, like the 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 mirrors, is you're activating it. You know, you're you're you, you have to go and interact with it rather than, you know, you can just look at it. You know, lots of people look at it, but I like that sort of this activation of a, a piece of work. And then that got me onto the apple, and it was just sort of, oh, hang on, it's adam and eve and it's the judgment of paris and it's heracles and it's steve jobs and newton and the beatles. the beatles and william tell and um uh gosh snow white and um uh suzanne and magritte and um you know the viking gods and it was so i do my thing and go right let's really research that and then you realize gosh it's been a symbol of sin and redemption it's been a symbol of of beauty discord immortality and death you know and it's sort of the most humble of fruits but it's been there at every stage of you know human history as a as a as a sort of a player, really, uh, as as this sort of symbol that we can sort of put anything on. And so I... And they're all the things that you know. You know, I can say that list to anybody and they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And But it's actually when you put that together and it was like I opened a door slightly into this world and it was just bowled over and I've just totally fallen in love with it. And it's, I want to be part of that genre, you know, I want to be part of that story of the apple. And so I started drawing it, sculpting it, making it, and, you know, I made a a, a massive uh, sort of two meter apple in the exhibition. Was that fiberglass? It was fiberglass, yeah. Um, And it was this sort of wizened apple Which symbolized what? Well, it was called Land of Hope and Glory, Mm. Um, and it was, you know, with all these things, people take you know what they what they want from it, and um, but how in, in making it, I was sort of quite interested in when those in power sort of exercise their unscrupulous desire for more, the effect that that has on, on us. And so maybe that apple is us. Maybe that apple is our, our country. Maybe that apple is society, but then it could also be, you know, it could also be represent sort of nature in a way sort of like the animals in, in, in me want now that they could also, they could be us, but they could be nature. You know, is it, is it, it could be life in, in general of, so you've got this sort of drive of people, more, you know, more, you know. When you look at Trump and you look at, uh, you know, our government and stuff, it's it's sort of, um, and 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 in Brazil and, you know, in all of these places, this desire for for more, and this sort of detrimental effect that that has on on everyone else and and, and our and our planet. Um, so, um, you know, it's become, you know, I'm, uh, this sort of love affair with the Apple. And it's sort of driving most things now. And one thing that I really like about it, you know, I make since the beginning. I've sort of made film and sculpture, and you know now sort of drawing and painting, and sort of always done sort of installation. But it's really nice the idea of being able to tie that together with the Apple. Hmm.
0: Um, so you're now a multimedia operation.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a way, I've always, you know, even when I was doing ceramics, I was painting them with enamel paint, and I was using epoxy putty, and I was making wooden bases, but everything looked like ceramic, <laughs> um, and I was sort of raiding doll's house uh, dolls' house uh, pubs and things like that for cigarette packets and... Uh, beer bottles and beer cans and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I sort of feel, I'm really excited at the moment. It sort of feels like the beginning of, uh, I sort of feel at home, mm. Mm. makes sense. I feel like it's the start of something.
0: I mean, a, a question, I think I've talked to you about this in the past, but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued, uh, to see what you, you reply to this, which is the, the criticism of, of satirists, is that actually they're part of the establishment, so have I got news for you, help spawn Boris Johnson, for instance. <laughs> um, I mean, you, your work satirises society's ills, it talks about inequality, but you're selling to, presumably, quite a well-heeled audience. Yeah. How do you get around that contradiction? Being an artist, you have a voice, and it's,
1: it's good to be able to use that voice with any audience that you have, really. Um so if you can change anybody's perceptions of, of something, then that's a that's a that's a great thing. You know, I I think you know things like the tower were you know people have said I I don't walk down the street in the same way. You know, I don't look at shops in the same way. Uh you've totally changed my perception of the high street. And no, that's an amazing. That's an amazing thing. Mm. But what I'm doing with the sort going on with the, the the research of the the apple
0: is I'm doing a, a, an artist book about the apple. So, okay. So that because this is coming into my because we, we're getting to the end oh, of our okay. time. Um, but this is coming to my future question. So is yeah. this this is the this is the next thing that's
1: yeah, coming up? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm making a book. About the apple, I went to see the publisher about it, and they, I think they were expecting me to sort of propose this social history of the apple, and I went with this mock-up of um, just pictures, really, and like heavily cropped into pictures. So you, you know, you might have the apples from a Cranach painting, and you might have like the apples from a Suzanne painting, but really close up so you can see all the cracks and everything and then it's got um and it it offers up sort of juxtapositions of um oh you know spanning centuries spanning um media of of genre so it goes from sort of farming to contemporary art to uh religion to superstition um, sayings, um, you know, the American frontier, uh, uh, cider, um, and just looking at the full expanse of the um, the influence and the sort of proliferation of the apple in our society, really. There's a I huge
0: think. bit of visual research,
1: fundamentally. Yeah, so it's basically my research put into a book, really. Mm.
0: Um, and when is that going to be published?
1: I, hopefully next September.
0: Brilliant. Well, our listeners will be looking out for it. <laughs> Barnaby, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you very much. really thank appreciate you. it. It's Thanks. great. And to learn more about Barnaby Barford's work, go to barnabybarford.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.